Hi, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, the storytelling capital of the world, and broadcasting from the historic McKinney Center, it's Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour. Now, I'm Jules Courier. I'll be your host tonight as we go hiking, spelunking, rafting, exploring all over this region and everything it has to offer for outdoor adventures. We've got stories from park rangers, hikers, bikers, cavers, and people who just love making their own action stories here in the great outdoors. Joining me along with the cast tonight is Alicia Phelps, who is the director of the Northeast Tennessee Tourism Association. And Alicia almost reluctantly agreed to share with us some of her favorite out-of-the-way spots that she's discovered during her work there. This includes waterfalls and lesser-known waterfalls. I went to one of them and it was amazing. A double waterfall was, was flowing that day because it had rained the day before. And she's going to show talk to us about some trails and points for beginners and also points of interest for people who are a little bit more sure-footed and a little bit more advanced and really want to go on a really good hike. Just bring along extra band-aids and bear spray. We're also excited tonight about our musical guest, Amy Saxon-Meyer, and she's going to be playing with our own Brett McCluskey. They met while performing with the Tusculum University Jazz Band. They have put together a show tonight that you are going to love. It's a rendition of some of their own uh, of, of some jazz standards and they're putting their own kind of twist on it. You are going to love it. It's coming up later on in the show. And of course, we'll get to our latest installment from Ann Jafeller's Mason and her historically creative or creatively historical team over at the Heritage Alliance. Now, here is Stephanie with a story from right around here. Have I got an outdoor adventure story for you that goes back in my family over 150 years. My daddy's family homesteaded on Bays Mountain, and the old log cabin that my granddaddy built is still there. But you can't take a road to get to it anymore. You've got to make your way on foot to really get there at all. It's a long trip. In the early days, my granddaddy's job was to drive teams of horses from Asheville to Bays Mountain, and that was rough going. We're talking horse and buggy days. They would sell the horses to farmers once they got to Bays Mountain. Granddaddy was 72 when he married my grandmother in 1929 and had my daddy. If you know your math, that means Granddaddy was born in 1857. And if you know your history, that means even more. My Granddaddy, not my great or my great-great, but my Granddaddy, was born before the beginning of the Civil War. My daddy, he was born before the stock market crashed. And I was born before integration came. But I lived to see it happen, just like my granddaddy lived to see freedom come. Just like my father is still here to see his grandson drive a car over the mountains instead of a team of horses. And when daddy rides with Adam, the 19th century sits with the 21st. It's that close in our family. We've covered more distance. We've covered more time. When I hold my father's hand, I hold history. And when I hold Adam's hand, I hold change. That is who we are. It's who we must continue to be. Each generation reaching into a better, brighter future. There will be bumps in the road for us to continue to climb over, but nothing worth doing is ever easy. What a story, right? Thank you to Pam Daniels for sharing that special story, as well as her daddy, Montreal Brown. I sat with Montreal as he told me that story. Montreal was born in 1929, and his father was 72 when he had him. So I sat listening to a story with a man whose dad was born before the Civil War, who lived to see freedom. I think about that, and I think about how close we are to the past. We may think of things as 
so far and removed and distant, but they're not. It's just that close. It's amazing to think about. And if you want to be inspired, and if you're inspired by this story, and you want to walk in those same footprints, or horse prints, as they did back then, you can see the old homestead up on Bays Mountain. It's one of the places that you can go walk to. You might have heard about an old homestead up there, but now you know whose it was. One way I can tell that it's spring each year is the emergence of the dogwood blooms. The daffodils and tulips. Well, those are some early harbingers of spring, but for me, I was talking about the emergence of the Johnson City Bear. Oh yeah, I got it on my ring camera back in 2019. He got curious about a package on my doorstep and even tried the doorknob a couple of times. It's such a smart bear. Good thing your door was locked. I love our Johnson City Bear, even when he disturbs our usual exercise routine. Yes, like the year that our Johnson City Bear got comfortable around the trail over by MedTech Center. That's my favorite place to go running in the evening, but not, not when, when the, the bear, bear is, is on, on the, the trail, trail with, with you. <laughs> when I'm on a real trail, I try to keep an eye out for bears. I mean if I'm up on Roan Mountain or up on the Appalachian Trail. But I mean, the trail, the running trail, in the middle of Johnson City, and all that traffic? Yeah, we might be ready to turn a corner and see a group of residents or nurses taking a walk break, but nobody's ready to turn the corner and find that fella. That year, I think our walking trail was closed due to bear activity for about a month. I didn't mind too much. I mean, a hundred years ago, it was his territory. He does have a right to live here, and we need to share it. He was at liberty to do so last year when about everything was closed because of quarantine. It almost felt like wildlife was taking over. It's still early in the season, and I haven't seen any signs of him yet, but hopefully he'll make an appearance soon. Just to let us get a glimpse. Just to let us see he's still around. Just to let us know, we can share this place together. Keep an eye out for our Johnson City Bear, and do me a favor. When you see him again, post a picture so we know he's still around, and of course, where. I grew up in New York, and my idea of city wildlife is squirrels, birds, an occasional rabbit in the park, but not bears. However, when our children were young, we enjoyed a multitude of family vacations to out-of-the-way places where wildlife and wild adventures were right at our feet and about as unusual as the city bear. Destinations one would never book through a travel agency or brag about on social media. Speak for yourself, I'm all over this one, but I'll post these using an alias on Instagram for sure. Thus, in our extremely long but legendary van rides, we discovered Alfred, the giant bull in Audubon, Iowa. Learned about the exalted beer-drinking goat in Montgomery, Texas. And met Breaking Bad's real-life candy lady in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, we told you to stay clear of that one. However, our family's number one most memorable vacation experience was our whitewater rafting adventure in the Great Smoky Mountains on the Nantahala River. Let me explain. Although my husband and I had never actually whitewater rafted, canoed, or even boated together, we separately had accumulated some water sports experience. I had faced and conquered the class three and four rapids of Pennsylvania's Yongagani River in college a few years before getting married and having a family. And remember, as a middle school teacher, I chaperoned years of annual spring whitewater rafting trips on the Genesee River in upstate New York, managing to keep a raft full of hormonal and irrational sixth graders from drowning was certainly worthy whitewater experience in my book. Not to mention Boy Scout trips and church camp canoeing lessons. They're also on my watercraft resume. Hence, at the Whitewater Rafting Business Outpost, when given the choice between a guided tour or an unguided tour, 
we confidently chose to face the Class 2 Rapids without the extra expense of a guide. Big mistake. Hilarious, epic, bumps and bruises, Instagram account moments with over 10,000 likes, but big mistake. <laughs> the fee for our adventure covered the rafting equipment for our family of four and transportation on a bright blue spray-painted former school bus to the put-in. The fee also included some pre-trip instructions. We listened to the guide's tips about using the paddles properly, tucking one's feet in for stability, and what to do if one found themselves in the water. Good thing I've got the waterproof GoPro. Meanwhile, my husband and I nodded with a sense of superiority at the simpleness of the guide's directions and safety warnings. After all, these were class two rapids. How rough could this two-mile course be? Lulled by the accent of the South, my husband and I paid little attention to the guide's directive about the location of the takeout. I do recall one young man explaining that this would be the place where we would meet up and gather our rafts and equipment and board the bright blue bus to return to the outpost. The mention of PVC pipes, waterfalls, and hospital trips didn't penetrate our concern as we were tranquilized by the drawl of the wet-suited guides. A few overly concerned parents asked annoyingly clarifying questions before we boarded the bus, but soon we were on our way. Once in our raft, we drifted over the gentle current. Then we hit the rapids. My sister and I paddled and balanced. It was great. <laughs> As the sunshine peeked through the canopy of trees, I leaned back and relaxed, enjoying the sound of the rippling waters and the looks of delight on our young family in this beautiful surrounding. The rafts containing guides triumphantly scooted past our raft as the staff encouraged simultaneous paddling. Once again, my husband and I shared a look of superiority at not having to share our family time with outsiders. We were truly enjoying this afternoon on the river. In the shallow areas, the kids waded and splashed each other. It was a truly glorious morning. Close to the two-hour mark, the whitewater rapids began to increase. We had to do some back paddling to negotiate a large stone or two in our path, and we noticed some bright blue arrows painted on rock faces directing us when the river forked. As our trip continued, we began to notice other rafting companies takeout signs and saw yellow and orange buses pulled up with trailers filled with rafts. Tired-looking families were toweling off following the completion of their trip. Hey, Dad, there's no bright blue buses or familiar faces on shore over there. Should we go anyway? Mm, I don't think so. Let's just keep paddling. Understandably, the glimpse of other families with their feet on dry ground reminded our children of their own bodies. I'm getting sunburned. Are we there yet? My legs are getting stiff. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Are we there yet? <laughs> we thought we'd been through the rapids and would be wrapping up soon on the shore, but the rapids increased. We dug our paddles into the water and encouraged our children to do the same thing. Another bend in the river, and we saw a green takeout sign and a matching bus and loaded trailer. Uh-oh, did we take the wrong fork? Look, there's a sign up ahead that says public takeout ahead. Is that our stop point? Nah, it's not bright blue. Keep paddling. The rapids increased even more, and water started splashing into the sides of our raft as we rounded a sharp bend in the river. Mom, there's a white public takeout sign perched next to a bright blue bus, and there's our guides. Honey, they're, they're waving their paddles at us, uh, sort of frantically. What, what are they, they shouting? shouting? Hey, over here. Their slow southern drawl was no longer recognizable. The shouting became louder as they waded into the water with their paddles, reaching out in our direction. Stop. You need to stop right now. Unfortunately, the shouting, waving guides, waiting families, and bright blue buses, uh, they were on the right side of the river. Our raft was on the left side of the river. Rough rapids and large boulders are now separating us. The splashing was becoming more intense, and the rapids were gaining speed. Taking in all of these sights, my eyes focused on the strangest sight. 
Directly in front of our raft, a rope was strung across the river. Perfectly spaced along the rope hung white cylinders. We briskly approached them, and I reached out to grab one, and it slipped through my grasp. Mom, didn't the guide say something about PVC pipes right before a waterfall? A waterfall? A waterfall! Immediately down we went. All four paddles were digging into the rapids simultaneously, gasping for air as the water flew in my face. I mentally counted the bodies still in the raft. One, two, three, four. Was that the waterfall? If it was, then we all made it. Mom, I don't think so. Remember the other thing the guide said? Y'all will enjoy a ride to the hospital, if you're lucky, that is. My husband's memory of the guide's words must have been restored with that splashing decline in altitude, and he ordered... Draw paddle! With the superhuman strength that is often described in news stories, working together, the four of us, we somehow managed to steer our raft safely to the shore where we were greeted by white-faced, wet-suited guides who helpfully lifted our raft from the sandy shore and carried it to the trailer. Uh, Shame-faced, we boarded the bus. (laughs) At the outpost, we changed into dry clothes and returned to our family van. As we left the adventure behind us, instead of taking the right turn, taking us to the main road, my husband made a left-hand turn. I looked over at him questioningly. He explained that he wanted to see the waterfall that we had managed to avoid. I turned the GoPro back on to see what might have been, to add to what had already happened to us. The van backtracked on the dusty road that bright blue bus had just traveled. Beyond the public takeout, we continued on. Following another bend in the road, we pulled to a stop. To the most picturesque, steep-falling waterfall through greenery and cliffside you could imagine. Luckily, from the safety of our dry van. As a family, we have never enjoyed another white water rafting adventure. Well, with one exception, we rode on the Cali River Rapids in Disney's Animal Kingdom. This trip can be booked through a travel agent. You can also read about it on my Instagram page and Mom's Facebook. What a story, and again, a true story, because that's what these shows are based on. And thanks to Martha Waldron, who was brave enough to face those rapids, and even braver to share that story with us. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. with tonight's music guest, Amy Saxonmeyer. She is a well-known artist, vocalist, musician, and community volunteer in Greenville and in Greene County, Tennessee. And it's been her home since 1979, and she is one half of the musical duo, uh, the other half being Marsha Griffith, um, the smooth sounds of Route 66, which specializes in jazz standards and tunes from the 50s, and they have been performing here for private parties and events in the area since 2003. In addition to having had numerous local art exhibits, I've seen her work, it's amazing, Saxonmeyer, who refers to herself as a contemporary folk artist, designed and painted 15 of the 20 large quilt square images, which are permanently displayed on various commercial buildings and properties as part of the downtown Greenville Quilt Trail. You have got to go out and see those if you haven't seen them. They're they're just so lovely. Um, And now I would like to invite this incredibly talented performer to the stage. Please help me welcome Amy Saxonmeyer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
foggy day in London town. Well, it had me low and it had me down. I viewed the morning with such alarm. The British Museum, well, it had lost its charm. How long I wondered this thing possibly last what the age of miracles it hadn't passed and suddenly I saw you standing there and in foggy London town the sun was shining everywhere How long I wondered could this thing possibly last But the age of miracles it hadn't passed And suddenly I saw you standing there And in foggy London town the sun was shining, shining, shining everywhere goodness jazz standards jazz swing standards i just love them and they're so much fun to sing and i'm having so much fun here i i'm delighted to have this opportunity to in my own little way keep this music going it's so special it was my it was the music of my parents actually so i grew up hearing this around the house frank sinatra ella fitzgerald rosemary clooney judy garland Oh, gosh, those were the people that I really admired and loved. I, I can't believe I'm up here singing the songs that I used to listen to back then. So thank you very much for letting me share this with you all. <laughs> I like New York in June. How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? I love a fireside when a storm is due. Oh, I like potato chips, moonlight motor trips. How about you? I'm mad about good books. Can't get my fill. And James Durante's looks, well, they give me a thrill. Holding hands in the movie show when all the lights are low may not be new. How about I like it? How about you? I'm mad about good books Can't get my fill And James Durante's looks Well, they give me a thrill Holding hands in the movie show When all the lights are low May not be new how about I like it? How about I like it? How about I like it? How about you? Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Amy, I think we all like it. How about you? <laughs> that was great. Um, and we just want to thank Amy Saxmeyer again and for our own Brett McCluskey who was accompanying oh, yes. her here. And we hope that you're going to be back to sing with us again in the future. I'd love to. And uh, do you have any, uh, any, you want to let us know any sites that we can look at if we want to find more about you? Well, you know, because of this past dreadful year and a half that we've had, we 
there hasn't been much going on, and there still really isn't. But when, when things get back up and running, uh, for one thing, I'll let you know. All right. And we'll network, and we'll get the word out. Okay? So keep an eye on our page, and we'll let you know where uh, Amy and Marsha will be playing next. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you all again. We have another special guest. Alicia Phelps is the director of the Northeast Tennessee Tourism Association. Many of you will recognize her from her days in Jonesboro when she used to be the marketing director right here in Jonesboro. That's when we first met. And since then, Alicia has really helped put Northeast Tennessee on the map with the great social media campaigns, television commercials, print guides. Last year when COVID hit the region and tourism, which is such a big industry in this region, began to take a hit, Alicia headed up the folks who would keep our area thriving, promoting the things we could still enjoy even during quarantine. And that is all of the incredible outdoor opportunities we're lucky enough to have here. Tonight, Alicia's gonna share with us some of her very favorite spots and give us some insights as to where we can go, whether it's with family or a friend's trip out, for avid hikers or true beginners, there's a place outside for everyone here in Northeast Tennessee. Come on up, Alicia. Help me welcome to the stage, Alicia Phelps. Hi. So, Alicia, talk, I, I got to meet you at a really cool place that had these double waterfalls that were flowing and it, it was just this gorgeous place and I'd never been to it before even though I've lived here several years now so tell us about some of your favorite spots that you like to go to here in Northeast Tennessee. Yeah so I must say also it's an honor to be on this show because it's also a former Northeast Tennessee Tourism Pinnacle Award winner so I was excited to honor that. Thank yes. you. <laughs> but um, yeah so we're talking about all things outdoors today. I loved listening to the stories and we can chat a little bit about air, water, or land because we've got all three. We do. <laughs> so um, we went to Wilbur Lake, and you had never been there before, but you live here. And how many years have you lived here? I've lived here seven years now. Okay. You're like a lot of people, even <laughs> folks who are lifelong residents, which of course we consider you a lifelong resident now. Wilbur Lake is one of those off the beaten path places that I kind of don't want to tell people about, but I guess I have to because it's my job. Half of you don't <laughs> listen to this next part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, Wilbur Lake, it's in Carter County near Elizabethton will be your nearest town. And it's a beautiful drive. Uh, the day that we went out there, it was a wonderful back road, mountain day. Day. When the sun started shining for the springtime, there's a campground out there and um, also Wilbur Lake. So we'll talk a little bit about that. It is near the Wilbur Dam, naturally. But what makes this lake pretty cool is it's non-motorized. So you actually will not be, if you're out on the water, you won't be passing by folks who have boats such as like a speedboat or uh, jet skis or anything like that. So it's one of my favorite places because it's the first place that I learned to paddleboard on. So if you're learning that or if you're into canoeing or kayaking or even fishing and you kind of just want a little bit out there uh, in the outdoors without all the hustle and bustle of everybody um, going by, it's very quiet and serene. And then, of course, yeah. the it double waterfall. It, <laughs> it was really quiet on the day that we were there. And there were a lot of people there, but it, it was still a nice, quiet day. There was some somebody that was kayaking and he kayaked behind the waterfall that it was going and a lot of times I find when I, I go out to a recreational area I catch myself screaming to be heard above the motorboats and things like that but it, it, you could hear the birds call here. It was absolutely beautiful and then near it is also Watauga Lake which is a much larger lake there are marinas there you can even rent kayaks and paddle boards um, but it's it's a super clean lake now it's got a wonderful history and there is nothing like being out there and having the Watauga Lake Sailing Club which includes folks from all over the southeast U.S. with these sailboats go by you um, and then having the Appalachian Mountains tower over you it's just absolutely stunning and then there's also little islands that you can hop over to, whether you're on a boat or a kayak. So it's a great day out on the water. That sounds like fun. You know, 
landing your feet on your own special island for the day. I, I like to do that. And who else is excited that uh, Boone Lake is back? Yay! Yay! <laughs> so it's great to see that out there as an option. We used to have dragon boat races out there, so it's exciting to see fishing tournaments are coming back. Um, along with the South Holston Lake, can't forget that. It's another one of those beautiful mountain lakes that the mount- that you'll see, you know, just the mountains towering over you in waves, so um, it's wonderful. But we can't forget our rivers, so South Holston River is phenomenal, known internationally. It's um, the top river in the southeastern United States if you're into fly fishing. My son, yeah. Stephen, comes here to go fly fishing. Yes. Hi, and Stephen, if you're watching. <laughs> we see folks from all over in search of brown trout and rainbow trout, so that's a really great stream to go after all year round. Watauga River also, but then... Nolichucky River, which is my personal favorite river, and we've had a little bit of a rafting story already today, so I have to say, if you're into rafting, that's the one. We have the upper Nolichucky River, which is a little bit more strenuous. You get up to a class four rapid. Um, Also, about the coldest I've ever been in my life has been on that river, and that's actually when the water was warmer than the air outside. So, well, that was that was a bit, but what makes that Nolichucky River so great is that it's free flowing. So we called it the Wild and Free um, because it is not dam controlled, even though it's a dam in Greenville, but it is not in operation. So it is a free flowing river that is dependent on the rain. So it could get wild and crazy. Or if you want to go down on the lower Nolichucky for just an easy half day, um, you can go on that and, and hop on by Chestoa Recreation Area. And all this is in the Cherokee National Forest. We're so fortunate to have such great assets like this out there for us and one another fun activity that I love out there on the Nolichucky is the Nolichucky Outdoor Learning Institute so if you're not into the outdoors we see folks come through that they just have zero experience hiking but they want to learn how to survive they want to learn how to tie a rope they want to learn how to kayak or maybe even swift water rescue or most importantly stewardship of our natural lands there is an outdoor institute where survival masters will teach you all of these things pertaining to the outdoors so whether it's a couple hours full day or even three days out in the wilderness no, not me. No. <laughs> um, they'll teach you all you need to know and they are nationally known um, and it's it's great to have that right here in our back door so if if our listeners and our viewers out there want to know more where can they find you Sure, we can um, always help you find something to do here in Northeast Tennessee, whether it's the outdoors or you're into history, lots of history hiking trails too, which we haven't mentioned, but um, you can go to northeasttennessee.org and we'll get you where you need to go, whether it's a day, half day, you live here or you're looking for a weekend getaway. Thanks so much, Alicia. That was wonderful. And you told me about a few other places that I didn't know about. So who's ready to hit the great outdoors with me now that warm weather's here? Yay! Yeah, we'll have, we'll have to go on a uh, hike soon, a storytelling hike. A storytelling hike sounds great to <laughs> Thank me. Thank you. Thanks, Alicia. Thank now we're going to go from 21st century technology like we just heard, you, you want to go to that website and check out all that Northeast Tennessee has to offer. But now we're going to go a little bit further back in time where people were still coming to this region for outdoor adventures. And to hear stories all about it, please help me welcome to the stage Anja Fellers-Mason of the Heritage Alliance in a segment we like to call Ask the Historian. Thanks, Jules. We're going on a little train ride today from Johnson City to Boone, North Carolina. Along the way, we'll see plenty of scenic sights, miles and miles of natural forest. Tunnels that go right through the mountain. Rivers and waterfalls. And it should only take about four hours. Four hours? Maybe a little longer. Four hours? But I can drive there in less than two. Well, today you can, but in 1920, you were on Tweetsie time. The East Tennessee and Western North Carolina, ET and WNC for short, was a celebrated railroad that connected travel between Tennessee and North Carolina and dated to the late 19th century. The thoroughfare was nicknamed the referencing the bird-like sound of the train's whistle, which one newspaper characterized as a mellow toot. Now, despite its notoriety, the ET and WNC was never a large system. It was chartered in 1866 by the Tennessee General Assembly to connect Johnson City, Tennessee, and Cranberry, North Carolina, 
located in the Blue Ridge Mountains. The distance totaled approximately 32 miles. Now, failure to secure enough financial backing prevented construction, and the charter remained untouched for almost two decades. Well, the Cranberry Iron and Coal Company, under the direction of financier General Ario Pardee, acquired the railroad in 1873. Pardee helped to introduce a route between Johnson City and nearby Hampton, Tennessee, in August 1881. This original section later expanded, connecting with Cranberry in July of 1882. Iron and timber bustled out of western North Carolina, moving through Johnson City and along interchanges provided by the Southern Railway in Carolina, Clinchfield, and Ohio Railway, also known as the Clinchfield. Unlike other railroads, the ET and WNC route was constructed according to three-foot narrow gauge specifications by engineer Colonel Thomas Matson. Narrow gauge standards reduced construction costs and allowed the trains to navigate the difficult terrain of the Blue Ridge. This railroad not only had to go around mountains, it also had to go over them and sometimes through them. Its very existence is an engineering marvel. Well, indeed it is. In 1919, the Tweetsie adopted an extension to Boone, North Carolina, known as the Linville River Railroad. At its peak, the line represented a 66-mile track with two additional short branches that reached Minneapolis. Minneapolis? Well, Minneapolis and Pineola, North Carolina. Oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> In addition to the traditional iron and timber products, the railroad also shuttled furniture, brick, agricultural goods, tanneries, and textiles. According to the Knoxville News Sentinel in 1938, the Tweetsie was the highest railway in Eastern America and one of three commercial narrow-gauge railways remaining in this country. Like other 19th and 20th century rail lines, the Tweetsie did offer passenger services. However, it did not operate scheduled passenger trains throughout the entire year. Instead, these services were only offered during the summer months, which allowed tourists to ride the train in order to view and visit the scenic local mountains. As one Johnson City Press headline from July 1939 boasted, the route shows off scenic wonders to jolly, carefree excursion crowd. Some passengers did not even bother going to a train depot. They would simply flag the Tweetsie down outside of their homes for a ride. Sai, is that someone waving us down running towards the train? Yeah, good thing we just shoved off. Better slow us down again. They'll catch us when we stop. Whew, I sure am glad you saw me. I've got to get to Boone for a church social this evening. You got a ticket? Uh, no, but I heard the Tweetsie was the friendliest railroad, and I could hop on just about anywhere. We are friendly, but we also have to make a living. You can pay your ticket at the next depot. Yes, sir. Cy Crumley was a conductor on the Tweetsie for a number of years. He saw and heard it all. All aboard! This train is about to depart from the Cranberry Depot. Uh-oh, Cy, here's someone else running at us. Well, that's Mrs. Brown. What can I do you for today, Mrs. Brown? Well, Cy, I'm hoping you can help me out. I need some of that fabric from Johnson City, a very special kind. If I give you a description and some money, can you fetch it for me? You want to hop on the train and come and get it for yourself? Make sure you get the right kind anyway. Goodness, no. I don't have time for that. Thank you, Cy. You do everyone's shopping? Well, there's hardly a day that some housewife doesn't ask me to bring her a spool of thread or that some man doesn't give me an order for a pair of shoes, a hat, or some tools from town. That last line is a direct quote from Cy Crumley himself. And that's part of the reason your trip to Boone might take so long. That and the number of depots along the way where the train had to stop. And there was the occasional stray cow. Uh, got a message in. There's a cow up ahead. Prepare to stop. It felt like a cow on the tracks kind of day. What do we do after we stop? Well, we put on our gloves and we just encourage the cow off the tracks. I didn't think there'd be so much bovine work in the railroad business. <laughs> well, the railroad business is a little bit of everything, especially on a line like the Tweetsie. Sadly, the ET and WNC began to decline in 1940. Massive floods along the Linville River Railroad near Cranberry, North Carolina, forced the section to be abandoned as there was minimal online traffic which mostly consisted of tourists, and the cost of repairs were extensive, estimated at $50,000. In 
In March 1940, the Tweetsie again became a short 34-mile system. World War II temporarily increased the traffic on the railroad, with newspapers reporting that a war 300 miles away may rescue Tweetsie from being abandoned. In fact, in 1943, two of the Tweetsie's engines were loaded up and sent to Alaska as part of the war effort. Unfortunately, after the conflict ended, the iron and timber industries diminished. As a result, the final train traveled between Elizabethton and Cranberry in October 1950. All that remained from the once interstate route was a 10-mile section connecting Johnson City and Elizabethton, which was mostly used to transport textiles. Throughout the 1960s, the Tweetsie continued to use steam power before eventually switching to diesel locomotives. In 1983, the ET and WNC was renamed the East Tennessee Railway after being purchased by the Green Bay Packing Company. Today, most people encounter the Tweetsie in two new forms, as a paved walking and biking path that stretches between Johnson City and Elizabethton, covering the train's original route and via the theme park in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, where the ET and WNC steamers saved after the closure of the narrow gauge lines in 1950 still chug along the tracks. And if you've ever been to the camp at Doe River Gorge, you've also spent time on the Tweetsie Railroad. Doe River Ministries rebuilt part of the track in 1998, and today they run a train to Pardee Point, the historic lookout as part of their Adventure Quest and Day Quest programs at the Gorge. You can learn more about the Tweetsie Railroad at the George L. Carter Railroad Museum in Johnson City and at the Chucky e. Depot Museum in Jonesboro. The latest exhibit at the Chucky e. Depot, As Fast as Birds Can Fly, is all about the ET and WNC, and it features several of Cy Crumley's artifacts, including his conductor cap. There's even a whistle from one of the old engines on display. And if you listen very closely, you might just hear the Tweetsie's distinctive call. Thank you, Anne. That was another amazing story from Ask the Historian. Well, up next, we've got another great story. We've got the last of the old school do-all park rangers, Calvin Robinson, whose experiences cover ground between Asheville to the Sierra Nevadas and places all in between. I was at the end of an era where park rangers did everything. These days, there are specialty positions but I was the last of the do-all rangers. In fact, people used to call me Dudley Do-Right because I sort of had that image. <laughs> I remember my first month as a park ranger. I showed up to work fresh out of college and there was a fire season going on all over the country. I was working in Asheville, but as a ranger, we were ready to be called in anywhere. I got a quick course on fighting wildfires and the next thing I know, I'm taking my very first airplane flight to California, Redding, California, where I'm assigned to be a squad boss in charge of five young men from the Job Corps, my first ever forest fire in the middle of the Sierra Nevadas. Hey, Greenhorn, see these MREs? You and your crew, go ahead and load up as much of these as you can. I got with my five team members and we started loading up. Hey, y'all. Don't need to worry about all that. You can get more at the base, camp. You'll just be lugging extra weight otherwise. Well, the second that trainer left, the first hotshot trainer came back and said not to listen and load up anyway. Base camp will have food, but we're going to spike camp. And fire is tricky. You just never know when you'll get back to a base camp once you're up taming the flame. And sometimes food doesn't make it up to the spike camp. Mm -hmm. Well, I trusted that and we loaded up. All right. <clears throat> so there's a big truck or maybe a fire truck that takes us up or something with our gear. <laughs> we do things a little differently here since we have, you know, actual mountains and not those hills you have in North Carolina. <laughs> then... I took my very first helicopter ride to the top of a mountain where they unloaded us, and I was like, wow. I couldn't believe it. 
And so I kind of had my firefighter training on the job. The first fire I was ever on in the middle of the Sierra Nevadas with responsibilities way over my head. I cannot remember the name of the fire, but it was near the Shasta Trinity Wilderness Area in California. California was burning. That's why they needed help. And I was part of the interagency fire crew. Here you go. These guys are going to be under you, Robinson. They gave me five young men to fight this fire under me who were mostly inner city kids. They were in the Job Corps, straight out of Atlanta and other big cities. They'd never even been in the woods. So they had training and all that, uh, book work, and some, well, they taught them some things, but, you know, how to use fire tools. But we got out there, and one of them said, Hey, I, I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, where do I go? <laughs> and I'm like, um, you see these trees? Any of them that's not on fire will do. Oh, oh yeah, okay, I got it, I got it, like in old TV shows. Okay, I can, I can dig it. So, <laughs> he goes out behind a tree, and in a few minutes, we hear this awful scream. Whoa, oh no, no, no way, no. And then I see this bewildered-looking elk come running out of one side of the bushes. And then out of the other side of the bushes, this young man came out pulling his pants off. <laughs> so, at least I wasn't the only one kind of learning new things. But seriously, I was assessing the situation. I just got helicoptered up and dropped off on top of the mountain. And the first thing that went through my mind was panic because I had a radio. And what I heard on the radio made my heart stop, it seemed. The helicopter took off and crashed. Yeah, the first helicopter I ever flew on crashed right after loading me and my crew off. We were told to keep in radio contact because things can change really quick working a fire. Well, it did. Mayday, I'm going in. I looked in that direction and I saw it go down. I didn't know what had happened. It was silent for a few minutes and... And then... It's me. I, I'm okay. I auto-rotated in. I, I'm fine. I mean, I'm jammed up. I won't be walking down this mountain, but I'm here. I'd seen where it went down, and I called in the location. I guess they sent him somebody in to get him, but the fire was coming up, and we had to get going on our own work. Yeah, I wasn't looking forward to the helicopter ride back out, and fortunately, I didn't have to ride back out. The fire had an inversion of smoke and clouds that sucked us in for three days. They wouldn't be able to get to us. They wouldn't be able to get food to us either. I'm glad we'd listened to the older guy about stocking up on food because we weren't going to get back to any base camp for many more days. We fought fire back to a point where we were picked up by Army Deuce and a half. Later in that same fire, um, I was on top of a ridge and, and the fire was burning up towards us and we were pretty deep into danger. What do we do, boss? Start digging in. We may have to deploy our fire shelters. There's some traffic on the radio. I can't make it out. You better listen. They wanted to know our location and we told them and they confirmed that the fire was coming up our way fast. Hang tight. We're bringing an airdrop in. We dug into bare earth for our fire shelters and we saw this plane coming. It was a small plane followed by a larger plane. Hey, look at that. Quick, guys, now, lay down, fast, cover your tools, lay down, now! Next thing I knew, we were covered in slurry. It's kind of a pinkish, orange, slimy stuff, kind of like Ghostbusters. And it knocked the fire out as it was coming up towards us and covered us in this pinkish-orange fire retardant. It kept the fire from, you know, uh, coming up on us, but it's also a mess. You couldn't get it out of your clothes. I wore that badge of pride for years after, afterwards on every fire that I was on. People would ask me about it, and I had a story to tell. It didn't hit us straight on. It was like a glancing blow. It hit the ground and just kind of sprayed over us. Every bit of our clothes were covered up. By keeping an observer and sharp eye on things around me and using a sort of hyper-focus I've developed, I stayed safe and kept my crew safe. 
I probably owe it all to a, a learning disability. Yeah, I had a learning disability early in life and I learned to watch everything closely, to learn on the fly. I learned to overcome it. A crew has a crew boss, an assistant crew boss, three squad bosses, and each squad has five firefighters. And so I kind of brought my crew towards the rear and watched what was going on in front of me. I learned and I told my guys what they needed to do by hyper-focusing and teaching them as I learned myself. I had uh, what you call ADD, attention deficit disorder, and I would get distracted. I was always very bright, but I was unable to achieve very well in school because I got distracted and I daydreamed and everything just kind of went downhill from there. I wanted to learn to get over this and what actually developed was I learned how to hyper-focus. I've learned to a cover when I don't know what to do by observing and picking up real quick. And that's how I got through that first fire. And then the next fire I went on, I felt a lot more confident and I was sort of like an old hand. But we had a really good crew boss and he looked after us. He also knew I was marginally experienced that first time. He didn't give me any special treatment, but he did explain exactly what he wanted. And I do appreciate him for that because I was a lot more clear on what me and my team had to do to get the job done. Mostly, I tried to be prepared, not just for my own needs, but for those that are around me that might not be so prepared. I'd usually carry a pack of snacks or something else around me, around with me, you know, things that people might need out there in the wilderness. I'd find people that needed something because of low blood sugar or something else, and I'd always have something to give them. Some people called me Dudley Do-Right because I always seemed to have something handy that someone else needed. That all comes back to that earlier disability, which really became my superpower. I learned to cover for what I might have missed, then I hyper-focused to make sure it didn't show. That ability to hyper-focus made me look at the bigger world with a keen eye. I became very self-aware and then as I observed, vastly more aware of the world, which extended beyond me, beyond Asheville, and even beyond the Sierra Nevadas. It includes me and my neighbors. And then really, it includes everyone else in the world. What a story. And thank you, Calvin, for coming and telling your own story. Yes, that's Calvin's own story. And thank you for the work that you did to keep the parks in the country safe for us and a place that we can still enjoy and visit and survive in. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. I know our outdoor adventures always seem to wrap up too soon. We'd like to thank all of the people who contributed stories for tonight's program and, of course, our sponsors who helped make it all happen. The Tennessee Arts Commission, the Wild Women of Jonesboro, Gary and Sandy Degner, and our April show sponsor, David Castle. And we also want to thank our wonderful music guest, Amy Saxonmeyer, and our guest, Alicia Phelps. Now, it's getting warm out there. You've heard about some wonderful places to go and explore and visit around East Tennessee. So I say, let's go out there and let's enjoy ourselves. We'll see y'all next month. Thanks for tuning in.